10. D. Pompeii. But as these occurred in the former city so long before the time we are discussing as the year 1711, and in the latter in 1750, these can scarcely be the immediate cause, the reason most probably is that a reversion to simpler and purer lines came as a relief and reaction from the over-ornamentation of the previous period. There are not wanting, however, in some of the decorated ornaments of the time, distinct signs of the influence of these discoveries, drawings and reproductions from frescoes, found in these old Italian cities, were in the possession of the draftsmen and designers of the time, and an instance in point of their adaptation is to be seen in the small boudoir of the Marquise de Serrilli, one of the maids of honor to Marie Antoinette. The decorative woodwork of this boudoir is fitted up in the Kensington Museum. A notable feature in the ornament of woodwork and in metal mountings of this time, is a fluted pilaster with quills or husks filling the flutings some distance from the base, or starting from both base and top and leaving an interval of the hollow fluting plain and free. An example of this will be seen in the next woodcut of a cabinet in the Jones collection, which has also the familiar, Louis C's, ribbon surmounting the two oval Sevres china plagues, when the flutings are in oak, in rich mahogany, or painted white. These husks are gilt, and the effect is chaste and pleasing. Variation was introduced into the gilding of frames by mixing silver with some portion of the gold so as to produce two tints, red gold and green gold, the latter would be used for wreaths and accessories, while the former, or ordinary gilding, was applied to the general surface. The legs of tables are generally fluted, as noticed above, tapering towards the feet, and are relieved from a stilted appearance by being connected by a stretcher. Illustration, Writing Table, made by Reasoner for Marie Antoinette, Collection, Mobilier National, from a pen and ink drawing by H. Evans, period, late Louis XV. There occurs in M. Williamson's valuable contribution to the literature of our subject, Le Mublais d'Ardu Mobilier National, an interesting illustration of the gradual alterations which we are noticing as having taken place in the design of furniture. This is a small writing table, some 3 feet 6 inches long made during the reign of Louis XV, but quite in the Marie Antoinette style, the legs tapering and fluted, the frieze having in the center a plaque of bronze dory, the subject being a group of cupids, representing the triumph of poetry, and on each side a scroll with a head and foliage the only ornament characteristic of Louis Kim's style connecting leg and frieze, M. Williamson quotes verbatim the memorandum of which this was the subject. It was made for the Trianon and the date is just one year after Marie Antoinette's marriage. Memoir d'ouvrages fait et livres. Par l'ordres de Monsieur Le Chevalier de Fontaineau. Pour les gardes meubles du Roy par Reasoner. Emmanuel Paris. Savoir September 21st, 1771. And then follows a fully detailed description of the table. With its price. Which was 6.000 francs. Or L240. There is a full-page illustration of this table. The maker of this piece of furniture was the same reasoner whose masterpiece is the magnificent Bureau du Roi which we have already alluded to in the Louvre. This celebrated ebonist continued to work for Marie Antoinette for about 20 years, until she quitted Versailles, and he probably lived quite to the end of the century. For during the Revolution we find that he served on the special commission appointed by the National Convention to decide which works of art should be retained and which should be sold. Out of the mass of treasure confiscated after the deposition and execution of the king, Reasoner's designs do not show much fertility, but his work is highly finished and elaborate. His method was generally to make the center panel of a commode front, or the frieze of a table, a tour de force, 
the marquetry picture being wonderfully delicate. The subject was generally a vase with fruits and flowers, the surface of the side panels inlaid with diamond-shaped lozenges, or a small diaper pattern in marquetry, and then a framework of rich ormolu would separate the panels. The center panel had sometimes a richer frame. His famous commode, made for the Chateau of Fontainebleau, which cost a million francs L4.000 an enormous sum in those days is one of his chef's d'oeuvre, and this is an excellent example of his style. A similar commode was sold in the Hamilton Palace sale for L4.305, an upright secretaire, and sweet with the commode, was also sold at the same time for L4.620, and the writing table for L6.000. An illustration of the latter is on the following page. But the details of this elaborate gem of cabinet maker's work, and of Dalvier's skill in mounting, are impossible to reproduce in a woodcut. It is described as follows in Christie's catalogue, lot 303, an oblong writing table, and suite, with drawer fitted with inkstand, writing slide and shelf beneath, an oval medallion of a trophy and flowers on the top, and trophies with four medallions round the sides, stamped to recenter and branded underneath with cipher of Marie Antoinette and garde meuble de Lorraine. There is no date on the table, but the secretaire is stamped 1790, and the commode 1791. If we assume that the table was produced in 1792, these three specimens, which have always been regarded as amongst the most beautiful work of the reign, were almost the last which the unfortunate queen lived to see completed. Illustration, Bedstead of Marie Antoinette, from Fontainebleau, Collection, Mobilire National. From a pen and ink drawing by H. Evans. Period, Louis XVI. The fine work of Reasoner required the mounting of an artist of quite equal merit, and in Galvier he was most fortunate. There is a famous clock case in the Hertford collection. Fully signed, Galvier. Cecilur at Dorer du Roi Paris Capilatier. A Lobe Clay Dor. 1771. He worked, however, chiefly in conjunction with Reasoner and David Rentgen for the decoration of their marquetry. In the Louvre are some beautiful examples of this company operative work, and also of cabinets in which plagues of very fine black and gold lacquer take the place of marquetry, the center panel being a finely chased oval medallion of Dalvier's gilt bronze, with caryatids figures of the same material at the ends supporting the cornice. Illustration, Cylinder Secretaire, in marquetry, with bronze gilt mountings, by Dalvier, Mr. Alfred de Rothschild's collection, period, Louis XVI. A specimen of this kind of work in upright secretaire, of which we have not been able to obtain a satisfactory representation form part of the Hamilton Palace collection, and realized L9.450, the highest price which the writer has ever seen a single piece of furniture bring by auction, it must be regarded as the chef d'oeuvre of Valvier, in the Jones collection, at South Kensington. There are also several charming examples of Louis C.'s Mublaise de Luxe. Some of these are enriched with plagues of Sevres porcelain, which treatment is better adapted to the more jewel-like mounting of this time than to the Rococo style invoked during the preceding reign. The upholstered furniture became simpler in design, the sofas and chairs have generally, but not invariably, straight-fluted tapering legs, but these sometimes have the fluting spiral instead of perpendicular, and the backs are either oval or rectangular and ornamented with a carved ribbon which is represented as tied at the top in a lover's knot. Gobelins, Beauvais, and Arbusson tapestry are used for covering, the subjects being in harmony with the taste of the time. A sofa in this style, with settees at the ends, 
the frame elaborately carved with trophies of arrows and flowers in high relief, and covered with fine old Gobelin's tapestry, was sold at the Hamilton Palace sale for L1.176. This was formerly at Versailles. Beautiful silks and brocades were also extensively used both for chairs and for the screens, which at this period were varied in design and extremely pretty. Small two-tier tables of tulip wood with delicate mountings were quite the rage, and small occasional pieces, the legs of which, like those of the chairs, are occasionally curved. An excellent example of a piece with cabriole legs is the charming little Marie Antoinette cylinder-fronted marquetry escritoire in the Jones collection illustrated below. The marquetry is attributed to Reasoner, but, from its treatment being so different from that which he adopted as an almost invariable rule, it is more probably the work of David, illustration, carved and gilt causes or settee, and photo your armchair, covered with Beauvais tapestry, collection, Mobiliaire National, from a pen and ink drawing by H. Evans, period, end of Louis XBI, illustration, carved and gilt canopy or sofa, covered with Beauvais tapestry, Collection Mobiliaire National, period, end of Louis XBI. Another fine specimen illustrated on page 170 is the small cabinet made of kinwood, with fine ormolu mounts, and some beautiful Sevres plagues. Illustration, Marquetry Escritoire, by Davis, said to have belonged to Marie Antoinette, Jones Collection, South Kensington Museum. The influence exercised by the splendor of the court of Louis Quatorze and by the bringing together of artists and skilled handicraftsmen for the adornment of the palaces of France, which we have seen took place during the latter half of the 17th century, was not without its effect upon the industrial arts of other countries. Macaulay mentions the bales of tapestry and other accessories which were sent to Holland to fit up the camp quarters of Louis Le Grand when he went there to take the command of his army against William III and he also tells us of the sumptuous furnishing of the apartments at St. Germain's when James I.I., during his exile, was the guest of Louis. The grandeur of the French king impressed itself upon his contemporaries, and war with Germany, as well as with Holland and England, helped to spread this influence. We have noticed how Wren designed the additions to Hampton Court Palace in imitation of Versailles, and in the chapter which follows this. It will be seen that the designs of Chippendale were really reproductions of French furniture of the time of Lewiskins, the King of Sweden, Charles XII, the Madman of the North, as he was called, imitated his great French contemporary, and in the palace at Stockholm there are still to be seen traces of the Louis Quator style in decoration and in furniture, such adornments are out of keeping with the simplicity of the habits of the present royal family of Sweden, a Bourbon prince, too succeeded to the throne of Spain in 1700, and there are still in the palaces and picture galleries of Madrid some fine specimens of French furniture of the three reigns which have just been discussed. It may be taken, therefore, that from the latter part of the 17th century the dominant influence upon the design of decorative furniture was of French origin. There is evidence of this in a great many examples of the work of Flemish, German, English, and Spanish cabinet makers and there are one or two which may be easily referred to which it is worthwhile to mention. One of these is a corner cupboard of rosewood, inlaid with engraved silver, part of the design being a shield with the arms of an elector of Cologne. There is also a pair of somewhat similar cabinets from the Bishop's Palace at Salzburg. These are of German work, early 18th century, and have evidently been designed after Boulle's productions. 
the shape and the gilt mounts of a secretaire of walnut wood with inlay of ebony and ivory, and some other furniture which, with the other specimens just described, may be seen in the Bethnal Green Museum, all manifest the influence of the French school. When the bomb-fronted commodes and curved lines of chair and table came into fashion, having described somewhat in detail the styles which prevailed and some of the changes which occurred in France, from the time of Louis XIV, until the Revolution, it is unnecessary for the purposes of this sketch, to do more than briefly refer to the work of those countries which may be said to have adopted, to a greater or less extent, French designs, for reasons already stated. An exception is made in the case of our own country, and the following chapter will be devoted to the furniture of some of the English designers and makers of the latter half of the 18th century. Of Italy it may be observed generally that the Renaissance of Raffaele, Leonardo da Vinci, and Michelangelo, which we have seen became degenerate towards the end of the 16th century, relapsed still further during the period which we have been discussing, and although the freedom and grace of the Italian carving, and the elaboration of inlaid arabesques, must always have some merit of their own. The work of the 17th and 18th centuries in Italy will compare very unfavorably with that of the earlier period of the Renaissance. There are many other museum specimens which might be referred to to prove the influence of French design of the 17th and subsequent centuries on that of other countries. The above illustration of a Norse interior shows that this influence penetrated as far as Scandinavia, for while the old-fashioned box-like bedsteads which the Norwegians had retained from early times, and which in a ruder form are still to be found in the cottages of many Scottish counties, especially of those where the Scandinavian connection existed, is a characteristic mark of the country. The design of the two chairs is an evidence of the innovations which had been made upon native fashions. These chairs are in style thoroughly Dutch. Of about the end of the 17th or early in the 18th century, the cabriole legs and shell ornaments were probably the direct result of the influence of the French on the Dutch. The woodcut is from a drawing of an old house in Norwalk. It would be unfitting to close this chapter on French furniture without paying a tribute to the munificence and public spirit of Mr. John Jones, whose bequest to the South Kensington Museum constitutes in itself a representative museum of this class of decorative furniture. Several of the illustrations in this chapter have been taken from this collection. In money value alone, the collection of furniture, porcelain, bronzes, and articles deeper too, mostly of the period embraced within the limits of this chapter, amounts to about L400.000, and exceeds the value of any bequest the nation has ever had. Perhaps the references contained in these few pages to the French furniture of this time may stimulate the interest of the public in and its appreciation of this valuable national property. Illustration, clock by Robin, in marquetry case, with mountings of gilt bronze, Jones Collection, South Kensington Museum, Lewis XVI, period, soon after this generous bequest was placed in the South Kensington Museum, for the benefit of the public, a leading article appeared in the Times, from which the following extract will very appropriately conclude this chapter, as the visitor passes by the cases where these curious objects are displayed. He asks himself what is to be said on behalf of the art of which they are such notable examples. Tables, chairs, commodes, secretaires, wardrobes, porcelain vases, marble statuettes. They represent in a singularly complete way the mind and the work of the ancien regime, like Eisen's vignettes, or the cont of innumerable storytellers. They bring back to us the grace, the luxury, the prettiness 
the frivolity of that court which believed itself, till the rude awakening came, to contain all that was precious in the life of France, a piece of furniture like the little several laid writing table of Marie Antoinette Island to employ a figure of Balzac's, a document which reveals as much to the social historian as the skeleton of an ichthyosaurus reveals to the paleontologist, it sums up an epoch, a whole world can be inferred from it, pretty, elegant, irrational, and entirely useless. This exquisite and costly toy might stand as a symbol for the life which the revolution swept away. Illustration, Italian sedan chair, used at the baptism of the Grand Ducal family of Tuscany, now in the South Kensington Museum, period, latter half of XVII, century, chapter VII, Chippendale and his contemporaries, Chinese-style Sir William Chambers the brothers Adams were Perglisi, Cipriani, and Angelica Kaufman architects of the time Wedgwood and Flaxman Chippendale's work and his contemporaries chair in the Barber's Hall Lock, Shearer, Hepplewhite, Ince, Mayhew, Sheridan Introduction of Satinwood and Mahogany Gillows of Lancaster and London History of the Sideboard The Dining Room Furniture of the Time, soon after the second half of the 18th century had set in during the latter days of the second George, and the early part of his successor's long reign. There is a distinct change in the design of English decorative furniture. Sir William Chambers, R.A. an architect, who has left us Somerset House as a lasting monument of his talent, appears to have been the first to impart to the interior decoration of houses what was termed the Chinese style. After his visit to China, of which a notice was made in the chapter on Eastern Furniture, and as he was considered an oracle of taste about this time, his influence was very powerful. Chairbacks consequently have the peculiar irregular lattice work which is seen in the fretwork of Chinese and Japanese ornaments, and pagodas, Chinamen and monsters occur in his designs for cabinets. The overmantel which had hitherto been designed with some architectural pretension, now gave way to the larger mirrors which were introduced by the improved manufacture of plate glass, and the chimney piece became lower. During his travels in Italy, Chambers had found some Italian sculptors and had brought them to England, to carve in marble his designs, they were generally of a free Italian character, with scrolls of foliage and figure ornaments, but being of stone instead of woodwork, would scarcely belong to our subject, save to indicate the change in fashion of the chimney piece, the vicissitudes of which we have already noticed, chimney pieces were now no longer specially designed by architects, as part of the interior fittings, but were made and sold with the grades to suit the taste of the purchaser, often quite irrespective of the rooms for which they were intended. It may be said that dignity gave way to elegance. Robert Adam, having returned from his travels in France and Italy, had designed and built, in conjunction with his brother James, Adolphe Terrace about 1769, and subsequently Portland Place, and other streets and houses of the like character, the furniture being made, under the direction of Robert, to suit the interiors. There is much interest attaching to number 25, Portland Place, because this was the house built, decorated and furnished by Robert Adam for his own residence, and, fortunately, the chief reception rooms remain to show the style then in vogue. The brothers Adam introduced into England the application of composition ornaments to woodwork, festoons of drapery, wreaths of flowers caught up with ram's heads, or of husks tied with a knot of ribbon and oval petro to mark divisions in a frieze, or to emphasize a break in the design, are ornaments characteristic of what was termed the Adams style, 
Robert Adam published between 1778 and 1822 three magnificent volumes, works on architecture. One of these was dedicated to King George III, to whom he was appointed architect. Many of his designs for furniture were carried out by Gillows. There is a good collection of his original drawings in the Sewing Museum, Lincoln's in Fields. The decoration was generally in low relief, with fluted pilasters and sometimes a rather stiff Renaissance ornament decorating the panel, the effect was neat and chaste, and a distinct change from the Rococo style which had preceded it. The design of furniture was modified to harmonize with such decoration. The sideboard had a straight and not infrequently a serpentine-shaped front, with square tapering legs, and was surmounted by a pair of urn-shaped knife cases, the wood used being almost invariably mahogany with the inlay generally of plain flutings relieved by fans or oval petro in satinwood, Pergolesi, Cipriani and Angelica Kaufman had been attracted to England by the promise of lucrative employment, and not only decorated the panels of ceilings and walls which were enriched by Adams, Campo, in reality a revival of the old Italian gesso work, but also painted the ornamental cabinets, occasional tables, and chairs of the time, towards the end of the century. Satinwood was introduced into England from the East Indies, it became very fashionable, and was a favorite groundwork for decoration. The medallions of figure subjects, generally of cupids, wooden imps, or illustrations of mythological fables on darker colored wood, formed an effective relief to the yellow satinwood. Sometimes the cabinet, writing table, or spindle-legged occasional piece, was made entirely of this wood having no other decoration beyond the beautiful marking of carefully chosen veneers, sometimes it was banded with tulip wood or hairwood a name given to sycamore artificially stained, and at other times painted as just described. A very beautiful example of this last name treatment is the dressing table in the South Kensington Museum, which we give as an illustration, and which the authorities should not, in the writer's opinion, have labeled Chippendale, besides chambers. There were several other architects who designed furniture about this time who have been almost forgotten. Abraham Swan, some of whose designs for wooden chimney pieces in the quasi-classic style are given, flourished about 1758. John Carter, who published Specimens of Ancient Sculpture and Painting, Nicholas Regan and James Stewart, who jointly published Antiquities of Athens in 1762, J.C. Craft, who designed in the Adams style, W. Thomas. MSA and others, have left us many drawings of interior decorations, chiefly chimney pieces and the ornamental architraves of doors, all of them in low relief and of a classical character, as was the fashion towards the end of the 18th century. Josiah Wedgwood, too, turned his attention to the production of plagues in relief, for adaptation to chimney pieces of this character, in a letter written from London to Mr. Bentley, his partner, at the works. He deplores the lack of encouragement in this direction which he received from the architects of his day. He, however, persevered, and by the aid of Flaxman's inimitable artistic skill as a modeler, made several plagues of his beautiful jasper ware, which were let into the friezes of chimney pieces, and also into other woodwork. There can be seen in the South Kensington Museum a pair of pedestals of this period 1770-1790 so ornamented. It is now necessary to consider the work of a group of English cabinet makers, who not only produced a great deal of excellent furniture, but who also published a large number of designs drawn with extreme care and a considerable degree of artistic skill. The first of these and the best known was Thomas Chippendale, 
who appears to have succeeded his father, a chairmaker, and to have carried on a large and successful business in Street Martins Lane, which was at this time an important art center, and close to the newly founded Royal Academy, Chippendale published The Gentleman and Cabinet Maker's Director, not, as stated in the introduction to the catalogue to the South Kensington Museum, in 1769, but some years previously, as is testified by a copy of the third edition of the work which is in the writer's possession and bears date 1762, the first edition having appeared in 1754. The title page of this edition is reproduced in facsimile on page 178. This valuable work of reference contains over 200 copper plate engravings of chairs, sofas, bedsteads, mirror frames, girandoles, torchairs or lampstands, dressing tables, cabinets, chimney pieces, organs, jardiniers, console tables, brackets, and other useful and decorative articles, of which some examples are given. It will be observed from these, that the designs of Chippendale are very different from those popularly ascribed to him. Indeed, it would appear that this maker has become better known than any other, from the fact of the designs in his book being recently republished in various forms, his popularity has thus been revived, while the names of his contemporaries are forgotten, for the last fifteen or twenty years, therefore, during which time the fashion has obtained of collecting the furniture of a bygone century, almost every cabinet, table, or mirror frame, presumably of English manufacture which is slightly removed from the ordinary type of domestic furniture, has been, for want of a better title, called Chippendale. As a matter of fact, he appears to have adopted from chambers the fanciful Chinese ornament, and the Rococo style of that time, which was superseded some five and twenty years later by the quieter and more classic designs of Adam and his contemporaries. Illustration, facsimile of the title page of Chippendale's director, reduced by photography. The original is in folio size, the gentleman and cabinet maker's director, being a large collection of the most elegant and useful designs of household furniture, in the most fashionable taste, including a great variety of chairs, sofas, beds, and couches, china tables, dressing tables, shaving tables, basin stands, antique kettle stands, frames for marble slabs, bureau dressing tables, and commodes, writing tables, and library tables library bookcases, organ cases for private rooms, or churches, desks, and bookcases, dressing and writing tables with bookcases, toilets, cabinets, and CLOADHS presses, china cases, china shelves, and bookshelves, candle stands, terms for busts, stands for china jars, and pedestals, cisterns for water, lanterns, and chandeliers, fire screens, brackets, and clock cases, pier glasses, and table frames, gira and diolis, chimney pieces, and picture frames, stove grates, borders, frets, Chinese railing, and brass work, for furniture, and other ornaments, to which is prefixed, a short explanation of the five orders of architecture, with proper directions for executing the most difficult pieces, the moldings being exhibited at large, and the dimensions of each design specified. The whole comprehended in 200 copper plates, neatly engraved, calculated to improve and refine the present taste, and suited to the fancy and circumstances of persons in all degrees of life, by Thomas Chippendale, cabinet maker and upholsterer, in Street Martins Lane, London, the third edition, London, printed for the author.
and sold at his house, in Street Martins Lane, also by T. Beckett and P. A. D. Hunt, in the Strand, NDCC Alexii, in the chapter on Louis XV, and Louis XVI, furniture, it has been shown how France went through a similar change about this same period, in Chippendale's chairs and console tables, in his state bedsteads and his lampstands, one can recognize the broken scrolls and curved lines, so familiar in the bronze mountings of Cathiery. The influence of the change which had occurred in France during the Louis C's period is equally evident in the Adams treatment. It was helped forward by the migration into this country of skilled workmen from France. During the troubles of the revolution at the end of the century, some of Chippendale's designs bear such titles as French chairs or a bomb-fronted commode. These might have appeared as illustrations in a contemporary book on French furniture, so identical are they in every detail with the carved woodwork of Picau, of Counter, or of Nelson, who designed the flamboyant frames of the time of Louis XV. Others have more individuality. In his nearer frames he introduced a peculiar bird with a long snipe-like beak, and rather impossible wings, an imitation of rockwork and dripping water, Chinese figures with pagodas and umbrellas, and sometimes the illustration of Aesop's fables interspersed with scrolls and flowers, by dividing the glass unequally, by the introduction into his design of beveled pillars with carved capitals and bases, he produced a quaint and pleasing effect, very suitable to the rather effeminate fashion of his time and in harmony with three-cornered hats, wigs and patches, embroidered waistcoats, knee-breeches, silk stockings, and enameled snuff-boxes. In some of the designs there is a fanciful gothic, to which he makes special allusion in his preface, as likely to be considered by his critics as impracticable, but which he undertakes to produce, if desired, though some of the profession have been diligent enough to represent them especially those after the Gothic and Chinese manner as so many specious drawings impossible to be worked off by any mechanic whatsoever, I will not scruple to attribute this to malice, ignorance, and inability, and I am confident I can convince all noblemen, gentlemen, or others who will honor me with their commands, that every design in the book can be improved, both as to beauty and enrichment, in the execution of it by their most obedient servant, Thomas Chippendale. The reader will notice that in the examples selected from Chippendale's book there are none of those fretwork tables and cabinets which are generally termed Chippendale. We know, however, that besides the designs which have just been described, and which were intended for gilding, he also made mahogany furniture, and in the director there are drawings of chairs, washstands, writing tables and cabinets of this description. Fretwork is very rarely seen, but the carved ornament is generally a foliated or curled endive scroll, sometimes the top of a cabinet is finished in the form of a Chinese pagoda. Upon examining a piece of furniture that may reasonably be ascribed to him, it will be found of excellent workmanship, and the wood, always mahogany without any inlay, is richly marked, showing a careful selection of material. The chairs of Chippendale and his school are very characteristic. If the outline of the back of some of them be compared with the stuffed back of the chair from Hardwick Hall illustrated in Chap. IV, it will be seen, 